bold and raw perspectives of local politics. Important information which impacts our community, nation, and world. Exposing truth, transparency, and getting to the heart of relevant issues that you just won't see in the clickbait media. And always keeping it real. It's the Michelle Tanner Podcast. But I won't back down. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Michelle Tanner Podcast. We have an exciting guest on today. I am literally just going to jump right into this interview because I want to make sure we can get as much information and questions asked as possible because this has been a hot topic down here in Southern Utah and really all over the second district here in Utah. We have a U.S. Congress race going on right now. We are going to be electing our next U.S. congressman here in the state of Utah in our district. And this is a very important race. It's been a very interesting, controversial already race. And we'll delve into some of those details. But I'm really grateful that Bruce Huff has agreed to this interview. I have extended this invitation to any candidate who's running. And I applaud Bruce for accepting this invitation and being willing to answer some of the tough questions. So, so, Bruce, thank you for being here. And why don't you first just start out and, and give us a little bit of background on yourself and why you would be jumping into this crazy Congress position in the first place? Well, thanks, first of all, uh, Michelle, for having me and inviting me. This is awesome to do this. And it's awesome for you to be actually doing the podcast and, and listening to your introduction. I love the little riff at the end about uh, I won't back down. And I Knowing you as I've gotten to know you recently, you're that kind of person. You're not. You're a don't back down person. And we kind of were joking about what to call today's episode. And I said, well, you know, I'm Bruce Huff and I take no guff. And it's sort of like when I heard that, you don't back down and I don't take guff. That we're kind of uh, two peas in the pod. Here. I love it. Um, I I'm in this race. Uh, I've said this. It sounds sort of stump speechy, but it's you know sometimes when something sounds tried or it, it sounds cliched. It's because it's actually true and, and it gets repeated. In, in my case, I'm running for Congress because uh, my wife and I, Deborah, have 10 children. We have 22 grandchildren. And I am very, very concerned about the promise of America being robbed from my children and grandchildren and really yours, uh, yours in the audience. And that $34 trillion debt is what's going to rob that promise. We have to, our number one priority has to be reduce our spending and to um, uh, start chipping away at our debt. That means we need to balance our budget and we need to slow the growth of government down and we need to apply that towards uh, that debt. Uh, the, the inflation that we have today is a direct result of who the president of the United States is and his policies. Uh, it's a direct result of just printing money literally. I mean, the definition of inflation is uh, too many dollars chasing too few goods. Uh, that's Econ 101. And when we had COVID hit, um, yes, there probably was some emergency funding that needed to be done in that first uh, trillion dollars that was spent. But the second two uh, appropriations um, were not needed. Uh, we were paying people to stay home. We were uh, adding, we were calling things infrastructure uh, packages that were actually 
just ways to advance a very progressive agenda. And the reality is, well, we just didn't have the money to spend anyway. And it wasn't stimulating the economy. It was creating inflation. And again, that was almost an Econ 101 problem. And I don't know why uh, that anyone was surprised by the results of, of this action. So um, that's that's why I'm in the race. Um, now, maybe just a little bit about me. Uh, who is this guy? Who is this Bruce Huff? That takes uh, no guff. That takes no guff. Actually, I, for my entire life, I have introduced myself as, as Bruce Huff, H-O-U-G-H, like rough and tough. And now that I'm in politics, enough. Yes. <laughs> so so it's uh, enough, finally. Hopefully we can get enough of what's happening in politics. Uh, I, I grew up in a small town. I um, uh, had that. And, and candidly, at the time, I, I saw it as an idyllic childhood. You know, I'm, I'm the kid who got up, got on his bike, and didn't come home till dark. Um, you know, it was uh, one of those great uh, situations where we lived in an era when you could do that. I, uh, you know, I, I worked on my grandfather's farm. I uh, bucked bales of hay. Uh, I hilled potatoes. The Deseret News said that I peeled potatoes. Uh, miss, and I'm going, really, you guys? You're the Deseret News. You should check that quote. Uh, I hilled potatoes. Those of you who have been in agriculture know exactly what I'm talking about. I have peeled potatoes, too, but mostly <laughs> at the request of my wife. Um, so... You know, we hunted, we fished, we lived in a, an environment that that was just part of our everyday life. Uh, I had jobs literally from the time I was eight years old. I was expected to sort of fend for myself financially uh, with the example of my mom and dad who worked hard. Uh, but you know, I'd buy school clothes. I can still remember buying my first pair of eyeglasses in the third grade, walking across the street from the optometrist uh, to the, my bank taking out my passbook and withdrawing $50 to go pay for my glasses that I had just received. Uh, so it's just sort of been one of those things about, you know, hard work uh, is what I was taught. My, my dad wasn't um, very educated. He didn't finish high school. Uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom for most of my growing up, period. And uh, they taught me just three really important uh, things. So one was that I should uh, learn to work hard and that hard work was, in fact, its own reward because they didn't pay me to work hard around the house and in the yard and in the garden and in the other areas of, of life for our family. Um, and number two, that I needed to stand up and fight for things that I believed in. Uh, part of that was a, a little bit about how I grew up uh, in, in my religious upbringing as well, uh, where we were very much a minority in our, in our faith. And uh, unlike here in Utah, where you know, there's more of a dominant uh, uh, culture in, in, in the Latter-day Saint culture, for sure. And, um, and then third, it was uh, uh, that, you know, to find the pathway to joy, you need to learn to serve others. And so I really tried to take those three things and make them really a part of my life. I didn't intentionally think about them. I didn't have, I didn't sort of articulate them like I did just now. But they were things that I just learned, and I they just sort of were ingrained in me. But as I went through business, and as I got involved in in you know careers and in raising a family and uh, this sort of thing, it became obvious that these were the themes that sort of followed through in my life: hard work, 
standing up and fighting for what you believe in and serving others. And so I, I have done that really all my all of my life. So it, it literally uh, the the idea of working and serving uh, go hand in hand. Uh, but fighting for what you believe in also became a very important part, not only of my my uh, personal life, but in, in business. Uh, I started off um, you know, going to school, getting a, a degree in journalism. I worked in radio. Uh, I enjoyed that. Um, I worked for KSL in Salt Lake City for a period of time. During that time, I was allowed to the privilege of pioneering a whole new business, an industry that didn't exist. Uh, it was the satellite broadcast communications industry. And I was actually honored as a pioneer in that industry uh, later on. Uh, that was a very fun business because we were literally inventing that industry as we went. And today we just take it for granted. I mean, everything you see that you know is on broadcast or cable television uh, is getting there via satellite uh, in most cases. Uh, the um, the other part of my career was uh, mostly in the nutritional supplement industry, which is a huge industry in Utah, and we were one of the the pioneers of of growing that business through acquisition and mergers. And we uh, we acquired a small business out of Ogden, Utah, and we uh, used it as a platform and developed a, a, a sizable business. We made it a public company in 1998, and, and then it was sold later on. What's interesting about that business is that's also where I learned to stand up uh, and fight federal overreach. The FDA uh, decided to overreach their statutory authority and we said, this is a risk to our company. It's a risk to our industry. We can't stand for this. We couldn't get a trade association or any other company to join us in this lawsuit. We did it by ourselves, which was a risk to us. That's awesome. most, of them said, most of them said, well, we don't want to do it because they were afraid the FDA would look at them differently and that it might cause them hardship in the future. And we said... We understand that may be one of the consequences, but we have to do the right thing here. So as a company, we sued the FDA and we won the principle that we were suing them about, which related to their overreach. Later, Senator Hatch, who was a champion of the nutritional uh, supplement industry, said to me, he said, I don't think people understand that you might very well have saved this industry. And if, if we had allowed that to go the way the FDA wanted, this could have cost literally uh, thousands of jobs uh, around the country and in this state. This is a multi-billion dollar industry in the state. And what's what's fun about this industry is that um, we were able to do things, you know, employ over a thousand people in this state, uh, people from many uh, places in the, the CD2 district for uh, this congressional district. In fact, one of, one of the people who supplied uh, services to us was a company right there in, in Washington County called Desert Labs, the, the Googler family and their business. They used to do granulation for us. And for 20 years at least, maybe longer, they provided us with granulation services. Uh, and we helped them prosper their business and to employ their people and to do those things. And uh, they're wonderful people. And and I got to work with Mark Googler later in scouting. I was the president of the Great Salt Lake Council and and Mark served in a regional uh, volunteer position as well, and so we worked together in scouting. So those were that business background for me 
really puts me in a category well apart from those who are running for this office because what it does is it says, look, here's somebody who actually signed both sides of a check, someone who has employed people, created jobs, you know, helped families pay their mortgages and their rent, uh, clothe and feed their children and their family, uh, educate them to do all those things. That's, that's how we looked at what we did. We weren't just a business. We were an opportunity to help people prosper in their own lives. And that's, uh, I think, one of the great joys in my life. In, in a way, it was serving others in our community by employing them and allowing their families to prosper and to grow. Well, and I'm really glad that you hit on your upbringing that led you to that point and the work ethic that you were yeah. taught. Because one criticism I've heard of you is, oh, he's just a rich elitist up in Park City. What does that guy know? It's like, since when in America do we criticize someone for achieving the American dream? So I appreciate you bringing up the aspect of this wasn't handed to you on a silver platter. You you oh, no. did what we all aspire to do here in America. So I applaud that you have been able to do that. And that skill set, I believe, does serve well in a public service position, knowing what it's like to find success in the public sector. So I appreciate you bringing that that experience. I mean, even in the nonprofit sector where I where I have been a board member and a participant for many, many years, more than two decades, um, one of the nonprofits, literally its mission is to help people become self-reliant. And, you know, this idea of being self-reliant doesn't mean that we don't, um, you know, help other people and that we don't participate in the community. Of course we do. But if you are able to take care of your own basic needs, that frees you, that liberates you to help other people. And, you know, we do this in, in what, 15 countries around the world, in places where I served a mission in, in Central America and in uh, South America and Mexico and in Africa and in Asia and the in the Philippines. I mean, these being able to help people be self-reliant, wouldn't it be great if the government also help people be self-reliant and they can do that mostly by not taking as much of their money and by getting out of their way and you know we teach people how to do this so that they can take care of their own families without relying on government subsistence and and things like that because in many of these countries they receive a subsistence a, a daily subsistence amount that basically keeps them at the poverty line and they exist but they don't thrive and prosper. And and so we're breaking that cycle of poverty by doing that. And by the way, as a nonprofit, if anybody is participating in nonprofits, you know that there are a number of, of uh, agencies who determine, they rate you on how well you do your job as a nonprofit, like a Charity Navigator is one. And if you're spending you know, more than 10 or 15% on administrative costs, then you know, you may want to think second about whether you should be giving money to them, right? Because you want most of your donations and contributions to go to the programs that they purport to to provide for people. This is a, an inverse of that ratio in the federal government. We rub off most of the money on bureaucracy and only a part of what our tax dollars are sent to Washington for actually make it back 
to our state and local areas and to, to families and parents. And if we were rating the federal government uh, on the same metrics that Charity Navigator does on, on say, Mentors International, the, the charity that I'm involved with, this, uh, this foundation, uh, I can tell you that the federal government would flunk terribly. Uh, Absolutely. They're engaged in just too many things that they have no business being involved in. Education is a great example. This is an example where the Constitution has no provision for the federal government to be involved with. And, you know, the one thing that we can actually do, we may not be able to get rid of the the Department of Education right off the bat because you're going to need probably 60 senators to do that. But, you know, that would be the goal, though, right? At least for me, I hope that's the goal. Absolutely. Thank you. But, you know, what we could do. We could move the funding. We could block grant the funding from the, the, the Department of Education directly to states and let them administer that in, in their local school and, and parental groups so that the money is being... If we just did K through 12 and block granted the money that the federal government spends our money on K through 12, we could add $30,000 to every classroom in Utah. All we, and all we need to do is say, hey, block grant that back to us. You don't, we don't need you to tell us how to use it. We'll figure that out. We're smart people. We know what our children need. Our parents are smart enough to figure this out. Our school districts under the, the um, sponsorship of our parents are smart enough to figure this out. Just give us our money back. We'll do it. And that, all, that would just be the K through 12 money. That has nothing to do with you know other things they spend and, on, on uh, education. That's, that's like oh, not even one-tenth of what is spent in the Department of Education. But just start there. Yeah, well, because so much of the problem with that grant money or that funding coming from the U.S. Department of Education are the strings attached and all of the DEI and all of the non-academics that are attached to that that's being peddled into these schools. So that's what makes me nervous about the grants. But if there were no strings attached, well, then that's one thing. Yeah, they have to be. There's three kinds of grants that the uh, federal government actually gives to states, and one of them is what's called unrestricted, and that's what it needs to be. Yeah, if you're going to put restriction on like DEI, which, by the way, might have been a good idea when somebody thought of it, but it is actually turned into a different acronym that generally now means uh, divisive, uh, exclusive, uh, and uh, and intolerant. Uh, that's Amen. the new DEI. They have they have completely taken DEI and created a monster that now has to be slain. Uh, it is uh, it's a sad commentary when you take what has a reasonably good mission associated with it, with the way that it's de- decided, you know, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they literally turned it upside down to be divisive and exclusionary and to make it intolerant. And that's what's happened with it. It's happened in our universities. It's happened in our military. It's happening everywhere. Absolutely. And in corporate America. Corporate America, it's like the, the CEOs are so afraid of their DEI vice presidents now, they they say and do things that they don't even know what they're saying. They look at it and they go, oh, well, if my DEI uh, vice president says I need to be opposed to the Georgia voting laws, then I must be against them. Right. Because they they must be suppressing the vote because my DEI person said so. When on the contrary, they make it easier to vote, uh, but they also make it more secure and fair and safe. 
And so why would you object to that in voting? Only if your DEI vice president, like Delta Airlines or Coca-Cola, tells you to do that. Well, I'm glad that you're bringing this up because this leads into another potential criticism I've heard is you are the father of some Hollywood stars, Derek and Julianne Huff. And so I've heard that there's this concern because of that, that you may be too soft on some of these social issues. So down here, a big hot topic is drag shows in front of children. What is your position on drag shows in front of children? Well, first of all, I, I don't know what's happened in our culture, but to think that it's okay to have minors exposed to um, sexual proclivities is just not appropriate. Our parents need to be completely in charge of what our children are exposed to. And and putting on, uh, I'm not gonna, I, there was an experience I had, I'm not gonna get into it because it'll take too long to tell. But the reality is, is look, what was the, I do have Hollywood kids and they live in an environment that candidly is, is so woke that that them being my children is a greater uh, risk to them than them to me in my election. Um, I, I'm more concerned about what the effect would be on them than, than with me running as a conservative and as a Republican in this race. Uh, this, is a, this is a time where uh, if you look at what's happened in some of these social issues, um, we're just sliding further and further away from the the uh, fundamental uh, family values. And again, it sounds trite to say it, but it's a legitimate thing, a family value of, of having a father and a mother and and children uh, in the home. Uh, and look, I've been a single father. Uh, I know the difficulty of that situation. It's it's uh, it was heartbreaking for me, and it was it was hard and it was difficult. Uh, and and I was lucky enough to to be able to. To, um, to find my beautiful wife Deborah and to bring her family to, uh, together with mine and to create something even greater. I sometimes I think God has a plan B for us uh, that it's like oh okay something didn't work out and people make choices and that's that's the consequences of it. But all I have to say is this is I, I, I we could go into so many different subjects here, but suffice it to say that we don't need to be exposing our children to things. Uh, when, when you're 18 and older, you can make your choice. When you're a child, do not put things in front of my child that they that I disagree with, period, end of story, full stop, done, in the school, in the public square, wherever it may be. Uh, that's just not appropriate. If you want to have a drag show, fine. Have a private drag, drag show someplace where you can close the doors, you can have the people you want come attend it, go ahead. That's fine. This is a free society. You can do that. But you, but putting it in the public square where people can just be exposed to it is not appropriate. It's why we have even on television parental controls or on your social media parental controls. We want parents to be able to control what they do. And you just have to be careful about it. We want to honor free speech and free expression. But let's let's be careful about the intolerance towards those of the traditional values uh, when we're being asked to be tolerant of those who have different values than we have. And look, I want to show I want to show regard and and respect and dignity for all people. I don't know why people 
uh, either biologically or or mentally uh, or in, in a dysphoric fashion act or believe the way they do. I don't have an answer for that. And I'm not going to criticize anyone for those choices. But do not force those choices or that exposure to those choices on innocent children. We just can't do that. Amen. I so appreciate your position on that. And I want to get your response to those who say, he's just another Mitt Romney. Do you align with Mitt Romney? Or if not, who would you say you most closely politically align with? Probably Eisenhower. <laughs> okay, that's not the one that most people would pick, right? Uh, actually, Eisenhower was a pretty smart guy. I, he he doesn't get as much credit as he as he probably deserves, but um, he he did do you know he did the interstate uh, highway system, which was a legitimate federal uh, thing. But he also uh, was very careful about things that uh, that the federal government should not be involved with. And I have a lot of respect for for Eisenhower. Um, as for Mitt Romney, look, I've known Mitt Romney for many, many years, and I supported him for president, uh, and I voted for him for for senator, and I called his office and asked him not to vote to impeach President uh, Trump uh, over ridiculous uh, assertions during the uh, Ukraine phone call and the you know the uh, uh, the dossier and all that that was a bunch of garbage it was not an impeachable issue i even said i was very specific i said look if you disagree with the tone and tenure tenor of that phone call then go get joe manchin and go to the well of the senate and stand up and ask for a censure of, of donald trump it, it would not pass, but you made your point and then move on. But to vote for impeachment was absolutely wrong. That You have to have a presumption of innocence, number one. You have to have due process, number two. And you have to apply the law equally. And we already had sufficient evidence that the vice president of the United States, Joe Biden, had had very inappropriate phone calls and bragged about them in the public about he was how he was in essence extorting, um, you know, the the uh, the uh, president of Ukraine on you know the prosecution uh, issues relating to his son. I mean, it's like what what are we talking about here? Let's and even today we can go through every almost every indictment here. There's such a double standard; it's ridiculous. Uh, by the way, I'm the only person who voted for Donald Trump for president, and uh, twice. And I appreciate that. Who would have thought of three Republicans on the ballot? You are the only one. Let that sink in. The only Republican on the ballot who voted for President Trump. Thank you for that vote, by the way. Yeah. And and let's be really clear. Becky voted for Biden and Celeste Malloy voted for no one. And by the way, she hasn't voted in six of the last 10 elections. And that's the reason why her voting record was being expunged from the voting system, because in this state, we actually purge voters who are not active. And so when she declared her candidacy, she was not a registered voter and therefore was not even registered as a Republican in this state, which you're supposed to be, according to state law and party rules, a declared uh, Republican to be able to run in a Republican contest. And it wasn't until a few days after she declared that the lieutenant governor's office decided to let her know that she needed to come in and uh, and uh, actually register as a Republican. 
The problem with that was, is number one, it was a violation, but number two, nobody disclosed that fact before the convention. My guess is, in fact, I think it's more than a guess. I think I could safely say that if the delegates who attended the convention uh, to uh, nominate uh, a candidate for this office in Delta when that was done, if the, if the delegates knew that she had not been registered as a Republican when she declared, there would have been a significantly different outcome. Absolutely. Uh, that convention. I don't think there's any question about no that. No question. As I, as I have people come to me and say, I can't believe it. I, I don't know how that is even possible. Well, it's possible because nobody knew about it. It was not a transparent process. Exactly. And, you know, and, and candidly, my opponent, she says, well, you know, the LG's office says I am, the Republican Party says I am, and the judge says I am. And I say, no, that's actually not what happened. In fact, the judge did not exonerate either the candidate or the LG's office for, for those issues. He just said, it's too late. I cannot stop this election at this time and will not do it. But he did not exonerate anyone in this right. process. And that's clear. That needs to be clear for people to understand. The other thing is that this process uh, was, in fact, flawed from the beginning. Um, we had very truncated times, uh, which was important because we wanted to have someone replace Chris Stewart as quickly as possible. But the reality is we had uh, less than two weeks, really 10 days to campaign for uh, that office at the convention. And the thing we love about the caucus convention system is that in a caucus convention system, the delegates get a chance to really vet the candidates. Well, that, there was no time to vet candidates during that time. Uh, if we had had time to vet candidates, probably we would have discovered that she wasn't uh, a Republican uh, as a filed Republican. We would have discovered that you know she had actually lived the last four years in Virginia and wasn't a hometown girl in, in southern Utah. Uh, yes, she worked in Beaver County for 10 years. She was a public employee. She was a public employee in Washington County for a year or so. And then she's been the last four years in, in Virginia, which is fine. There's right. nothing wrong with that. Just don't overstate the fact that you're a hometown girl when you actually don't even have a residence uh, in this district. Absolutely. That you crash at your sister's house when you come to town to, to work for the uh, congressman on issues that you're paid to do. Uh, and so, you know, that's a, and I know people think, oh, am I being harsh on this? I'm trying to be transparent about it. Yes. I mean, one of the problems with that, with that uh, convention was the, the rule that we are all of a sudden now only going to let one person come out of the convention with a 50% plus one, and that number two, uh, you might, well, that was it. I mean, that you, you you only get one out and you only come out with 50%. And, and that's different than a normal convention system. And so there were some real differences in the way this was done. And by the way, the state party says it was the state's fault. And the state says, well, we were just following the party from the last special election. And so we've got to get that sorted out. So there's a lot of work to do legislatively and with the party between now and the next special election whenever and hopefully never happens again because it is a terrible way to do this process because uh, look you know becky you know has you know the union uh, uh teachers union helping her gather signatures uh from her senate campaign uh, a year ago uh celeste had a two-week head start you know she had inside knowledge to this uh this resignation and uh was able to take the 
the Chris Stewart campaign apparatus and just basically turn it on. Uh, and I'm not trying to sound sour grapes. I know what I was signing up for. Not exactly, but but I'm finding out about what I signed up for. But I'm, I, I'm, to- I'm glad you're hitting on that because, and maybe you can go into it a little bit of maybe a brief history of SB 54 and addressing those who are concerned that you got signatures. And it, do you truly can do you support the traditional convention caucus system? Yeah, yeah I, look, I. You know, I was the chairman of the party for for two for two terms, four years, and it was the caucus convention system. At those in those days, it was a seventy percent threshold to get out of convention without uh, a primary. Uh, so it typically you would have two people in a primary, and that's a and I think that's typically good. It gives uh, the the rank and file Republicans in a closed Republican uh, primary a chance to vote. But yeah, we get that great vetting, but we have months to do that vetting in the caucus convention system. Uh, so. What happened is you had, uh, and then the quick history, if I can make it quick, uh, during the Tea Party movement, you had Bob Bennett uh, as our senator, and he hadn't really campaigned six years before, so I, I, he wasn't really expecting that he was going to have the opposition that he had uh, uh, in that year, and he had Tim Bridgewater, and he had uh, Mike Lee running against him, and in the convention, he received uh, less uh, votes necessary than, than to stay in the in the contest, and it was multiple ballot. And what's interesting about it is that Tim Bridgewater was the top vote getter. And if the Bob Bennett people had stayed in the room and actually voted instead of, you know, left, you know, uh, you know, with tears in their eyes, <laughs> if they had stayed, they could have cast sixty four votes, and Tim Bridgewater would be the the U.S. senator today, because uh, he wouldn't he would not have even had a uh, a primary. As it was, Tim Bridgewater and and Mike Lee went to the primary, and the supposed conservative, Mike Lee, wins in the more supposed primary uh, and is our senator today and is doing a darn good job. Uh, so people were upset that Bob Bennett, who was this really well-spoken U.S. senator involved with leadership and such, that he gets defeated in this really conservative uh, convention system that doesn't reflect the will of the people. And so they decide to uh, run an initiative called Count My Vote. Well, uh, that's a concern because that's a direct primary that bypasses the entire caucus convention system. And uh, the party was concerned. And in those days, uh, you had, uh, I think the chairman was uh, uh, Thomas Wright. And there was a negotiation. And the negotiation was, look, if we will raise the threshold to 66% to assure that, to make it more likely that we'll have more than one person come out of convention into a primary, then count my vote would sign on the line that they would not uh, run the initiative. And the central committee um, kind of cut their nose off despite their face. They said, we're not going to be told what to do. And even though many of us stood and said, look, this is a good deal. We were at 70%. We're only going to 66% and they will drop the initiative. And, uh, they wouldn't accept it. So we were at 60% and we refused the deal. And then they say, we're going to run the initiative. And, you know, it was not a, a bluff call. It was an actual situation. So essentially, and- the Republican Party, if I'm hearing this right, pushed and really caused SB 54 to even come about. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. Yeah, so now they're going to run the initiative. So now the party and the legislature get together and say, we got to do something about this. So the legislature negotiates with Count My Vote and with the party, and they say, okay, there's going to have to be an alternative route to the uh, primary because the objective was get more people in the primary. 
Uh, it's ironic because it was Bob Bennett and and Governor Levitt who actually pushed to lower it from 70% to 60% because they didn't want to have to run in primaries. But that's just another sidebar. Uh, so yeah, there. so then the legislature comes up with this alternative in conjunction with count my vote in the party to then provide an alternative route, which is signature gathering, which is, by the way, horrible. Uh, but it prevented having an initiative that would have produced a direct primary. So that SB 54, as much as everybody hates it, it actually saved the caucus convention system in the form that it is today, which allows us to still put two people into a primary if they get less than 60% of the vote, except for in a special election like this year, where only one comes out. And that is a, um, uh, a difficult thing to swallow. And now, uh, having gathered signatures, because if only one was coming out, and at the time it looked like Greg Hughes was going to come out of that convention, uh, if I really wanted to be a candidate, that was my only alternative. It was a legal alternative, a moral alternative, an ethical alternative, because if I decide to do something, whether in business or in the public sector or as a public servant uh, running for office, I'm an all-in person. I don't do it halfway. I'm not going to do it with one hand tied behind my back. In fact, Mike Lee calls, uh, he calls it malpractice if you don't get signatures uh, to run for office. So those are uh, important situations and considerations that we need to uh, take into account. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the deal. And, let, and before we end, let me just uh, just say that there there are some other things. It, the lawsuit to try to get this taken off, I, I preached against it because case law around the country says that if the states are involved in paying for elections, they actually get the last say. And so the only way around this is if the party can find a way to pay for its own system of nominating and electing uh, candidates. And that's a half a million to a million dollars a year uh, each election. So that's an alternative, but that's the only alternative. We have 100% of the control over that. Let me let me finish up with just this idea of where I live. Uh, I think you know I'm not an elitist. I mean, yeah, I've worked hard. I, In fact, I was helping a friend of mine in Gunlock uh, the other day get his, his hay taken up uh, for a load that he was selling. And and uh, we did a little of that uh, before I left uh, after the debate. Uh, this, this idea of where you live, please remember that congressional districts are constructed to divide equally the number of con congressional seats you have numerically. It's a numerical construct. It is not a geographic construct. I've been in three, three, uh, three congressional districts in the same house. Uh, so remember that if I'm in Davis County, which is in the district, does that make me more or less qualified to deal with Southern issues than me living in Summit County? I don't think so. Uh, if I if I was able to live in Nephi, which is my my wife's uh, heritage, where her ancestors settled there, uh, it's not in the district. It's just outside the district. But if I live there, and by the way, I'm a property owner there, my burial plot's there. Uh, but if I live there, does that disqualify me from representing the second district, even though I'm just a few minutes across the border to the district line? So to me, it's not about where my head hits the pillow. It's who's going to show up and be the person who works the hardest for you, fights for you, uh, reflects your values and is going to be there. My head's going to hit the pillow three times a week in Washington, D.C. I'm going to spend the Sabbath with my family, wherever they happen to be at that moment, and I'm going to be in the district otherwise. 
Uh, and my plan, candidly, is to put the main district office for the congressional uh, district in St. George, because I think that's where the attention on land and water needs to be focused. And it's one of the biggest congressional issues that we have. And so that would be sort of my intent as well. I so appreciate that insight. I appreciate the transparency and being willing to come on and answer questions. And I appreciate the integrity. So check out Bruce. What's your website? It's really easy. Bruce Huff for Congress. Perfect. Thanks for being a part of the Michelle Tanner podcast. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share. And always remember to keep exposing truth. But I won't back down. No, I won't back down. This has been a production from a podcast studio.